I'll tell you, it has been a morning. I baptized some kids up here this morning, and it was great. I have to be careful here. Um, I have already been baptized, so I'd prefer not to get baptized again. Uh, I love kids. You know, in Idaho, they have a food program for senior citizens. Sometimes Carolyn and I will go down there and pay our $2 and have a meal. Uh, um, The primary purpose of our going is to have some intentional relationships with the people in our community. And, uh, uh, but, uh, there is also meals on wheels and, uh, one of the ladies, uh, uh, Lauren is, uh, is, uh, she goes and delivers meals on wheels to elderly people and sometimes she takes her four-year-old daughter, Susie, and, and Susie is always fascinated with the paraphernalia for old people. You know, canes and walkers and wheelchairs and things like that. And, and Susie's always got a lot of questions about those things and how they work. And, and uh, they went into this one lady's house one day and there was a whole set of teeth soaking in a glass. And, uh, so they did their thing there and, and Laura knew as they were walking out that Susie was just going to pelt her with questions about that. And so they got in the car and they started around the block. And Laura said to Susie, well, what did you think? And Susie said, the tooth fairy will never believe this. Uh, and I, I, I when... When Kurt was up here in the first service asking these kids questions, uh, I wondered about the wisdom of asking them to speak. <laughs> so we are in Philippians and um, we have been talking about how the Apostle Paul is addressing his life. And let me review for you just a little bit. From last week. The first thing was that Paul viewed his own imprisonment from a positive perspective. Now, what I want to try to get you to see is that we can view life from a positive perspective. Uh, It really doesn't matter what's going on in our lives at any given time. It is possible to view it positively. And remember when we said Paul viewed his imprisonment from a positive perspective, we said that related to uh, the gospel going out. Remember, he said it went out to the praetorian guard. In one point we emphasized, uh, and he will say this later in the book, at, at the end of the book, that it even went out to the household of Caesar. And that would have been Nero. And um, that becomes an incredibly important aspect for the Apostle Paul at this point. 
And it helps us understand that even if we are imprisoned at a point in time, there are ways to look at that with a positive perspective. The second thing that we said last week is that Paul viewed uh, selfishness and impure motives from a positive perspective. Um, There were people who were preaching for all the wrong reasons. And it's possible to do that. It's, it's possible to preach for all the wrong reasons, especially if there's a, another preacher you want to kind of get at for some reason or another, which is what the case was with the Apostle Paul. But Paul said, I don't care about that as long as Christ is being preached. And so remember, we made a point that these were not Judaizers. These were not people who said, you have to keep the law to be saved. These were people whose content was correct because the Apostle Paul was praising God that Christ in his death and resurrection was being preached. So Paul is viewing life from a positive perspective. Let me say a couple of things before we go further. And this is a principle that all of us will be able to grasp. Whether we can apply it or not will be up to us. Life is 10% what you make it and 90% how you take it. I want to run that by you again, because some of you didn't get it yet. Life is 10% what you make it, and 90% how you take it. See, when we are young, we tend to think we have a handle on life. We tend to think we are in control of our lives. How many times have you heard Somebody say, I'm in control of my life. Uh, Well, I have news for them. There is no control of life. Remember a few weeks ago I said, if there's some of you in the room who don't have any trouble right now, wait a minute. Because it's coming. It may not look like you thought it was going to look, but the trouble is coming. The question is not whether or not I am in control of my life. The question is how I view the life that I have at any given time. And this is a a lesson I learned the hard way. Because I grew up not looking positively at my life and being very angry about the way my life went and being very angry and bitter about the people who made my life what it was. And if you are in that boat, what we are saying today is that 90% of your life will be how you view it, and not necessarily how well you can control it. And that's what Paul is dealing with when we are saying Paul is talking about how you cope with life. 
when you can view some of the worst circumstances with a positive perspective, you are viewing life differently than the rest of the world views life. Here's another thing. Whether you think you can do a thing or you think you can't do a thing, you are right in both instances. If you think you can do a thing, then you can do it. But if you convince yourself that you can't do a thing, then you're not going to be able to do it. I was convinced that I couldn't go to college. I was convinced for a lot of reasons that I won't explain now that I couldn't get a degree. And the result is is that when I came in contact with this person who started saying to me, yes, you can, yes, you can, I married her. So it's important that we get the point that what Paul is saying Life is not always the way we'd like it to be. Life is not always good. But we can view it with a positive perspective. So let's take a look at our message for today. Point number one is, Paul is saying that he viewed his own death from a positive perspective. Now, before we go to the text, let me explain to you that you and I are able to do the same. We are able to view even our own death from a positive perspective. Uh, Carolyn reminded me that her cousin, she was very close to her cousin. They were born the same night in the same hospital. Their mothers shared a hospital room together and their mothers were sisters and Carolyn grew up with Jolene and Jolene got lymphoma and died at a young age. And um, she was 33. Uh, Left her husband with two little boys and the day before she died, the night before she died, She said to Carolyn in the hospital, Carolyn, I don't want you to weep. She said, you know what? God loves Chuck and my boys more than I do. And God will take care of them. And it was what got Carolyn through knowing that Jolene was saying, and she did say, I'm going to see Jesus. God is going to take care of my husband. And my boys, the way in which you and I cope with life and life and death stuff is if Jesus Christ is the center of our life. And we're going to talk about that as we go this morning. But the only way to bring positive perspective to all of these things is when you know That Jesus is the center of everything you think and do. 
And that's what we want to lead toward today. So let's take a look at the text. We'll walk through it. Verses 19 through 24 of Philippians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, 19 through 24. He says, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Let's stop there for just a minute. He said, I know. Now, there are many words in Greek for know, and you've heard of, you've probably heard of ginosko. Ginosko means that you know something because you've experienced it. It's knowledge by experience. That's not what this word is. This word is oida, which means that there is knowledge certain. Knowledge certain. It's so certain that I could say to you, I know I'm sitting on a stool. That's how, not only do I know I'm sitting on a stool, but you would be strange if you didn't know I was sitting on a stool. There is knowledge associated with that. And Paul is saying, I have knowledge to know that this will turn out for my deliverance, my release. And then he goes on to say, according to the earnest expectation of, and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's concern was that Christ be exalted. Circle the word exalted. That word means to be put under a microscope, to magnify to enlarge. Christ will be magnified, enlarged. He's, he's talking about whether I live or whether I die, Jesus is going to be seen. And he's going to be seen so clearly as though Jesus is put in a microscope, in a slide, and turned on so the world can see him. And then he goes on. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live in the flesh, this will mean fruit, uh, faithful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. For I am hard-pressed from both directions. Paul is hard-pressed to decide whether he wants to live or whether he wants to die. The word hard press is a word which means to close off the ears. It means that you're kind of in such indecision that you've put your hands over your ears and you're waving back and forth trying to say, what should I do? It'd be something like you'd see the three stooges do. And the Apostle Paul is in absolute indecision. And the reason that he is, is because Christ is the center of his life. He is good if he dies. He is good if he lives. And so he finishes up by saying, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much, very much better 
Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I will be able to minister to you if I stay alive, in other words. So Paul depended on the brethren and the Lord. He thought he would be delivered. He depended on the brethren and the Lord. He maintained a dual dependence. One was the prayers of the people. You know, Carolyn and I have been doing this interim ministry now for a couple of years, and um, we have people praying for us. I only, I only choose people that I know will pray for us every day. And um, we have some of those people scattered around, in this case, all in the state of Oregon. And Paul is dependent on the prayers of God's people. We are dependent on the prayers of God's people. And he was dependent on the provision that would be made by Christ in order to get him out of the prison. And as we know, ultimately, in uh, late 62 AD, he was released from jail in Rome. He sought every means to magnify Christ. Jesus was the center of everything Paul fought and did. He never did anything without Jesus being the purpose of it. Jesus was the hub in the middle of the wheel that moved the Apostle Paul. You see that in verse 20. And then we see Paul's philosophy of life and death in this verse. Here in verse 21, he said, to live is Christ. Christ was the sum total of everything that he believed, everything that he thought. Christ was the sum total. And death was gain. So death was the bridge for Jesus from from this life into heaven, into glory. Death was the bridge that would take Paul from whether it was prison or whether it was just laying on the beach into something far more glorious, his relationship with God. Death is the time in which you and I cash in uh, what ultimately what Jesus had accomplished for us on the cross. Uh, Paul knew life. He understood life. From the Damascus Road to the Roman prison, the Apostle Paul knew a lot about life. He'd been through it. He'd been beaten, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, and all of those other things that you read about in the book of Acts. But the fact is, Paul made Jesus the very center of his life. And that's why he could have this kind of attitude about his life in prison and his potential death. Someone said, though I change my place, I will not change my company. You know what that means? It means that no matter where I am, Jesus is the center. And if I am alive here on earth, 
Jesus is the center of my life. And if I die and go to heaven, Jesus is the center of my life. This guy goes on and he says further, it matters little whether I live or die. If I die, I will be with Jesus. If I live, Jesus will be with me. So for the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And that means that no matter, no matter whether you are on earth living or whether you are dead and have gone to heaven, Christ is the center of whoever you are. Some of you have noticed that I have a tremor on my, mostly on my left side. Sometimes it, it comes over to the right side, but it's mostly on the left side. And so sometimes when I'm up here, you'll, you'll see me shake a little bit. Um, I sometimes will put, if it gets too bad, I, I put my hand in my pocket and, and that holds things down a little bit. Uh, it's not bad and it's, it does not affect the way I, function really uh, but originally I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and the tremor was very bad and uh, uh, that was 2005 and they put me on a couple of medications they put me on levodopa and they put me on ultimately on sentiment kind of the big gun at that time and uh, none of it worked all of it just made me sick and and so I finally said I'm not taking this junk and uh, but it ultimately resulted in my retirement. And after I retired a while, uh, the tremor kind of subsided and the doctors, the doctors said, wait a minute, this is not the way Parkinson's works. Parkinson's advances constantly. And uh, so they started asking other questions. They started doing other tests. And in the process, they found a blood clot in the brain stem. Now, that's a touchy place because neurologists don't like to cut into the brainstem. And uh, so they concluded somewhere along the way I had a stroke and maybe that's what was causing the uh, the tremors. And and uh, But as time went, the tremor got better and better and I got better and better. And, and uh, I started uh, preparing sermons and preaching to Carolyn and and she got tired of that and said, you need to go someplace else and preach. <laughs> but I tell you that to tell you this. When they found the blood clot, my doctor, who was a Christian, and uh, went, he goes to Hinson in Portland, and uh, he, he, had, he set up this appointment because he got the results from the neurologist. And he said, Rich, I have good news and I have good news. What do you want first? I said, well, give me some good news. He said, well, the good news is that this tremor that you have is, we believe, to be the product of that, that blood clot. And um, this blood clot could move one of these days. And you could wake up some morning and all these symptoms will be gone. I said, that is great. I'd be able to hold my rifle without shaking, and I'd hit a deer for a change. Uh, I said, well, give me some more good news. He said, well, the other good news is that this, tra- this blood clot could move 
someday, and some morning you could wake up in heaven. And you see, for the believer, it really is a win-win bargain. There's no getting around that. And the Apostle Paul understood and knew that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because even though I am here and I am with all of you wonderful people and I have my wife and my kids and my grandkids and I'm going to get a puppy one of these days. But when I enter into glory, it's going to be better, better than all of that. And so it is a win-win situation. And Paul understood that. So Paul's confidence of seeing them again was strong. He saw life as a continual opportunity to serve in verse 22. That's why he says, if I stay here, I will be able to continually serve you and minister to you. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not going anyplace. If, if I don't die, I'm going to be a minister. And that's kind of what's gotten into my heart and in my passion is to minister to people, to be someplace where I can make a difference. That's all I care about. And that's what Paul cared about. He seemed confident that God's will was in his release in verse 19. He said, I'm going to be released. And I know, and that knowledge was confidence. So let's take a look at the second point. Paul viewed their conduct from a positive perspective. And it's a little hard to talk about conduct. This is... This is the point at which uh, the preacher quits preaching and goes to meddling a little bit because conduct becomes very important. And, and I believe that the more difficult our world becomes, the more important is the conduct of the New Testament believer. <clears throat> Your life and my life stand as the conscience of the neighbors, friends, and relatives who are all around us who don't know Christ. And so our conduct becomes very important. When we look at our culture and our society, now I'm old enough to remember that there's a, there was a time in America when certain things would never have been tolerated. But now they are. And it's going further and further a little bit every day. And at this potential, at this time in our culture, the potential of the believer's conduct is what may make the difference. The church is the conscience of government. And that's why government wants to wash the church out of its hair. And the result is the conduct of the New Testament believer becomes very important. So let's take a look at the text. He says, beginning in verse 27, 
only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Circle the word conduct. It's the Greek word uh, polis, polis, uh, P-O-L-I-S, if you like. And uh, it's the word related to our English word politician. <laughs> now, it, it doesn't mean that. Uh, because we don't have a, a nice view of politicians in our minds today. Uh, it, it means that your behavior is the proper behavior of a citizen. Um, Carolyn and I are getting ready to go to Canada first week of next month. It's our 50th wedding anniversary and our kids are sending us up to Victoria to spend their money. And uh, and so uh, yesterday, I sat down and read my passport. Have you ever read your passport? There's a place in your passport that cautions you to conduct yourself as a proper American citizen. That's precisely what this word polis means. And when you come to chapter 3, verse 20 of this book, Paul makes it very clear that we are, in fact, citizens of heaven. And that's why he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, this has to do not with politicking. That's not what it has to do with all at all. It has to do with how we function as a citizen. He goes on, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you and you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stop and circle the words striving together. This is a word that is made up of two words. The first one is a prefix that is soon, S-U-N, soon. And it means together. It heightens the concept of unity in this book. It heightens the idea of unity among the Philippians. Um, uh, it's used 16 times in this book, uh, stressing the idea that these people need to be together in what they do. The second part of the word is the Greek word athleto, from which we get our English word athlete. And it means to strive or be athletic together. And the idea is if you're in a race and you're leading the race, you've seen racers running and stretching forward for the ribbon. And that's precisely what this word means, that the church together, athleto. The church together should be striving toward the goals that is set before them. If there's any word that I think should become our favorite word at Northwest Hills while I'm here and we're looking for a pastor, it ought to be soon athleto. We should join hands, work together push together, run together, and we should do that in as much unity as is absolutely possible. 
until we get a new pastor on the field to lead us further. Remember I told you, if you apply the principles of the book of Philippians, a new pastor will come and think he died and went to heaven because there aren't any churches like this around. So, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul exhorts this church to steadfastness. And he does that by using two images. He tells them to stand fast in Christ. Stand fast. That means to stand firm in what you believe. And in a world like ours, where everybody wants to tell us that a part of the Bible is wrong, or that things didn't happen that way, or that the Bible isn't from God, or that this is okay, even though the Bible says it isn't. It's our purpose to stand firm in those things and take a stand for Jesus and take a stand. I mean... I could give you illustration upon illustration of people that have done that through history and people that are doing it today, and it makes their lives sometimes miserable. But God wants us to say, I believe the Bible with all my heart and my soul. I believe it is inspired by God. And in the original manuscripts, it is inerrant. And I won't let anybody talk me off that. The second thing that he says is he tells them to stand up for Jesus. So that takes an action process. That means that he wants us to strive together and to do things that would bring Jesus to the neighbors, friends, and relatives that are all around us. In this passage, in verse 28, Christ gives us a new attitude about fear. He said, You don't have to be afraid of your opponents. He says, uh, uh, you don't have to do that. He gives us a new attitude towards suffering in verse 29. That is an incredible concept that uh, uh, not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And Paul goes on to say, the same way I'm suffering is the same way you're going to suffer. And it also gives us a new dimension of life. And that is eternity. That is because life and death is a win-win situation. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.14, Knowing that he raised the Lord Jesus, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So Paul is saying, remember, keep eternity in your scope. See, when it comes to conduct, when you live within yourself, when you are the center of yourself, 
you will manifest the fruits of your own nature. I remember doing a wedding years ago. Uh, and as weddings go, it was pretty normal. The bride was beautiful. The bridegroom was appropriately nervous. And, uh, and you know, a pastor gets a unique privilege because he stands right there with the two of them so close. And, uh, and, uh, he sees all the emotions. But I remember this wedding that when this young man said the words, I, John, take you, Sarah, to be my lawfully wedded wife, I could see that there was a change taking place. Because before that, John was pretty much the center of John's life. But when he came to those words, John was shifting the center of his life. And it was becoming this woman, Sarah Dunlap. And the result was, I could see it happen in his eyes. I could see it happen on his face. I could hear it happen in his voice. Another time I went into a hospital room and a young couple was in there. Uh, the gal had just had a baby the night before. And they were both in there and daddy was holding his little daughter. And in the process, uh, I could see that a change had happened. They were the center of each other's lives. And suddenly now there is this new little creature who has become the center of everything they think and do. If you are the center of your life, you produce what comes out of man and the nature of man. And that is corruption and sinfulness. It will not be the kind of conduct which brings glory to God. Not only that, but if you live within yourself, you produce what you are. If you live Christ, you produce what Christ, the Son of God, is. And so as a result, we want to make Jesus the center of our lives. And, and this is a good thing for you to ask yourself today. And I might add tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and on and on. Is Jesus Christ the center of my life? See, conduct unbecoming has become the expected norm in our day and age. Just last week, I learned of a pastor who committed adultery and has to leave his church in disgrace. And every time we see that, it damages the work of Christ. And uh, conduct unbecoming is seen all around us these days. Paul viewed their conduct to be a great advancement in the cause of Christ. So how they act, what their conduct is, is what makes the gospel attractive. It's what makes people say, I want to live like that. I want to be like that person. In just a moment, you're going to sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him 
I owe. And he did. He paid everything. He paid the price for your sin. At a point in time, I realized he paid the price for my sin. So the only natural response is for me to stop it. And maybe as you go to the communion table this morning and you sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Maybe it's a piece of conduct you have to deal with this morning. Maybe you know what it is. Maybe it's time for you not to pray a bulk prayer at communion. Maybe it's time not to pray, God, forgive me of all my sins. Get those out of the way so that I can go to communion. Maybe it's time for you to become a little specific and you know a piece of conduct that doesn't match up and you know you have to deal with that today between you and the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible words of the Apostle Paul. He points us in the places we would not go by ourselves. And perhaps a positive perspective on life is one of those places. Perhaps, Father, there's issues going on in lives in this room that are very difficult and it's hard to be positive about. Father, use your spirit this morning to show us how to be positive. And use your spirit this morning, Father, to bring those pieces of conduct to us that need to be cleaned up a little bit and allow us, Father, to join hands together as a church and become athletic in the work of gospel so that Jesus will receive the glory. Allow us to make him the center of our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen.